0: Now we're in a series on 1 Timothy because we are wanting to bring our church to a firm and stable basis. That's what the word establish means. And as I've said many times now, uh, we are planted, but we need to be established as a church. And being established as a church involves not only elders and deacons, But a people, a whole church entirely moving in the same direction to serve the Lord. And the church needs to be understood as an outpost of the gospel, not just a hospital for the sick, but a training ground and a strengthening ground. With that said, I don't want our church to be cavalier about anything. I think churches start off on a good foot sometimes when they want to to be better for God's glory and they want to do God's will with excellence and then slowly but surely it's not just be better for God's glory but it becomes be better. And then it's not excellence for God's glory it's just excellence. And so I never want us to be a church that strives Um, for systems or health or whatever it might be just because that's what we do we need to keep the kingdom and Christ in focus and especially we need to learn contentment as a church so as we strive for excellence and as we strive to establish ourselves for God's glory I want us today to press pause on that forward- leaning um, movement. And I want us to think about contentment today. Uh, so in First Timothy chapter six, Paul has talked about how the church should treat widows in chapter five, how the church should relate to elders, and now, Paul is going to pick up on that relation theme and talk about how bondservants should relate to their masters. And then he will address, again, the false teaching in Ephesus that Timothy needs to deal with. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll read through verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved Teach and urge these things that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. ...that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith... ...and pierced themselves with many pangs. In this passage, Paul is confronting a contingency of false teachers... ...in the church at Ephesus... ...who are bringing a spirit of tumult to the church... They're creating division, and they are motivated ultimately by a craving for status and gain, probably financial gain. And Paul combats that, and as I see it in this passage, as I understand this passage, which I've wrestled with this week for many hours, is godliness and contentment, which comes together in verse 6 godliness with contentment is great gain so I want to think about godliness and contentment t- today god bless you whoever that was <laughs> um, godliness and contentment not, is not an anxious obviously it's not an anxious desire to change your life's circumstances but a humble desire to serve God where you are. That's godliness and contentment. So, let's keep that in mind as we move through this passage, first starting with bondservants. Paul says in verse 1, that all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters worthy of all honor. Now, first of all, we need to talk about what a bondservant is. A bondservant in the Greek is the word doulos, and it's translated in many translations as slaves. Now, the problem with that is when we think of slaves, we automatically think of North America, 19th century, and things like the Civil War. Um, so we view the word slave in light of 1800s America you know, Alabama somewhere. But that is not the idea of slavery in Greco-Roman society. Now, I'm not saying it was perfect, but that is it, it, to view um, slavery through the lens of what happened in America would be to look at it through the, the wrong lens. Um, so the ESV chooses to render the word doulos as bondservant to more accurately communicate what a doulos was. Um So slavery, or bond servitude in first century, Greco-Roman society, and this was not Jewish slavery, like you find in the Mosaic law. This is Greco-Roman slavery that we're talking about here. Now a Greco-Roman bond servant, That was not based on race. It was not based on ethnicity either. Almost anyone could become a slave and almost anyone could become free, no matter what your race, ethnicity, gender, or age was. Uh, You could be born into bond servitude if you were born by bond servants. You could sell yourself into bond servitude. That was a form of bankruptcy almost. Uh, you could be penalized by law by being sold into bond servitude, so there are many there are many ways to get into bond servitude, even if you were a poor family, you could sell yourself in to bond servitude, and the benefits of that would be you could make a living bond servants were often paid. Um, you could have a place to live in the masters provided quarters for the bondservants to live in and you could eventually purchase your freedom so how were they treated it depends on the master in the greco-roman society Um, but in general like i said they were paid and they could buy their freedom and the master provided food and clothing and shelter that is not to say that this was a perfect situation because there were certainly cruel masters who abused their servants. So that is certainly there. Um, But, again, I want to say this was not, though it's not ideal, it was much different than 1800s in America. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, you see a Jewish um, group group of Jewish people who purchased their freedom and formed a society called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. That's probably bond servants who purchased their freedom and and formed a um, formed a synagogue. So that was the synagogue of the freed men. So this is—I read—I've read read statistics on how many bond servants there were in Rome or the Roman Empire. I've read one man who said that about one third of the empire was were bond servants. I heard—I read another man that said about two thirds were bond servants. So perhaps almost half of the Roman Empire were servants. What was Paul's attitude towards servants? Again, he doesn't think this is an ideal situation, but he was not concerned about facilitating an economic revolution or a social revolution. Um, And I think his his, uh, attitude towards bond servitude is wrapped up or summed up in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21 and 22. He writes, Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So you see Paul's attitude there. If you were if you became a Christian when you were a bond servant, don't be concerned about it. But if, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself that opportunity. So this is not an ideal situation, but Paul does want the bondservants and everyone to know that his mission is not necessarily to create an economic and social reform. That will follow. From a reformed society. But you aim at it. Through regeneration. And through redemption. So. Paul knows it's not as easy. As saying bond servants. Masters release all your bond servants. Bond servants revolt and come free. Because we're all one in Christ. There would be a massive. Economic. Confusion would result. From such a thing. This means that bondservants would have to find new work and a new home. And Paul's aim was not to mount a massive social and economic reform, but to teach honoring the Lord where you are. I heard one man put it, Paul was interested more in redemption than revolution. So the question here before us is how should bondservants treat their masters? First of all, how should bondservants treat their pagan masters? And being that, bondservants and masters, is more akin to our relationship of that we understand of employees to employers. We could ask ourselves, how should we treat as God's people, the elect? How should we treat pagan employers? Verse 1, Paul says... Regard them as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So, Paul is saying to the bondservants don't go in with an attitude of us versus them. It's us for them, representing Christ. Go in with an attitude of being a good representative by the way you work for your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What if they are a Christian? Well then Paul says serve all the better. Because they are your brother and they are beloved. Those who are believing masters. Must not be disrespectful. On the ground that they are brothers. Rather they must serve all the better. Since those who benefit by their good service. Are believers and beloved. So. Two things Paul is saying. Number one. The quality of your work should make a good name for your Lord and Savior. And I think that maps on perfectly to our employers today. Negatively, the quality of your work should not put a bad name on Christ. If they know you're a Christian and we put up lazy half-hearted work and it is not going to make a good name for Christ. You make a good name for Christ by working hard, being diligent, and trying to be a good representative for the name of Christ. Now, one caveat to this is: every time I hear um, some uh, a sermon preached on vocation or a teaching on Christian vocation, they talk about you know being the best you possibly can and impressing. The employee almost comes off to me like we should seek to impress our employer. So they ask, well, how come you're so good? And I think there's something to that. But I want to encourage you by telling you I think that you have not failed your job if you have not impressed your employer. Your job is not to impress your employer with how amazing you are. Your job is to be diligent and to serve the Lord with the job he's given you. So this is, a, this is against laziness, this is against doing half-hearted work. But don't be demoralized and say, oh, I'm not a good witness for Christ if your, job, if your employers aren't just absolutely stunned at how amazing you are as a person and employer. That's not always going to happen. Your job is to keep your head down, do good work, And be a good representative For your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ If you do have A believing employer Praise God Serve him all the better Because he is your brother Or sister in Christ There's a book called Practicing the Presence By a brother Lawrence Which I've listened to and read And there is one one sentence in this book that's always struck me. Now he was a dishwasher. And people were impressed with him. I, I wonder if he had a certain demeanor, but whatever it was, he impressed people with his diligence and focus on the Lord, even as a dishwasher. And The book, Practicing the Presence, was actually compiled by those who knew him and were asking him how to go about life as a faithful man with such menial work. And this is what he said in one place. He said, I walked before God simply, in faith, with humility, and with love, and I apply myself diligently. I think that's just such a beautiful, simple, concise way to put it. First, I walked before God. So God was in his front view mirror, or he was in his windshield. What would you? He is he's focusing on the Lord. He is seeking first the kingdom. He's acknowledging the presence of God and that God has given this him this duty, and he is waking up. With his Lord on the mind. Saying even though you've given me a menial task. As being a dishwasher. I'm going to walk before you. In this. So he walked before God. Yet he did it with simplicity. In trust. And humility. I love that. And his simplicity. Did not mean. That he slacked off. Because he ends it with. And I applied myself. Diligently. That would be an interesting book to pick up. Very sure, Practicing the Presence by Brother Lawrence. When I suggest a book from the pulpit, don't think I agree with everything the author says. You will never, ever agree with anything, everything every author says. And if you do, then I think you just need to work on your discernment a little bit. Um, we're always going to have some disagreements, but sometimes it's good to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. So that's his words to bond servants. And I see contentment in that. Contentment where you are. Serve God where you are with what he has given you. And do so diligently. And that was Paul's aim in his ministry. Not to form a massive revolution. Although good things can come from revolution. Some good things have. But Paul's aim... And the church's aim should be primarily, primarily, redemption and service to the Lord, evangelism, the scripture, discipleship. Next, Paul addresses the false teachers, and he's going to say that godliness with contentment basically is concerned with piety over prosperity so in verse oh let's back up the teaching what was the teaching in Ephesus we talked about this in verse 1 but the teaching in Ephesus was like a Jewish mysticism and it emphasized esoteric knowledge and it was promoting questions rather than speculations turn with me to uh, verse chapter 1 verse 3 remember he's aiming his charge against these false teachers and he writes to Timothy I urged you when I was going to Macedonia remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. These people were, were pr- promoting aimless knowledge. Aimless knowledge. And there were debates and quarrels about small, minute issues. And they put godliness to the back burner. I love the word stewardship is is oikonomia. It's the economy of God, essentially. So, instead of participating in the economy of God, which is walking before him, serving him, loving him, and serving your fellow man for his glory and seeking first his kingdom, things like these... They were rather entrenched in minute debates about small details. This does not mean that we should shy away from good theology in this church. I always want to say that. I want to be a church that can bring good, solid, precise theology along with stewardship and holiness. And there seems to be a split in the evangelical church where you're either a theology church or you're an evangelism church or you're either a theology church or you're a holy church or something like that I, I want to cast away that kind of dichotomy I want to be holy and theologically informed and I want our church to as well so that was the problem with the false teaching and Paul addresses this in verse 3 he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up. So the first problem with this false teaching is that it did not accord with godliness. It did not participate in bring people into the economy of God. The economy of God is not just words, but life. Not just doctrine, but praise. Obedience, holiness, stewardship, seeking the Lord, evangelism, discipleship, things like these. True doctrine, I think, is going to give birth to life. John Calvin writes the following. The doctrine will not be consistent with godliness... If it does not instruct us in the fear and worship of God. If it does not edify our faith. If it does not train us to patience, humility, and all the duties of love which we owe to our fellow men. Amen. It is not a helpful doctrine and it will not accord with godliness if we constantly spin our wheels on debates about words which promotes speculation rather than stewardship, but if preaching and doctrine and the atmosphere of a congregation is aimed at the fear and worship of God, like Calvin says, in edification, to train the heart in patience and humility and the duties of love for God and man, well, then there is a holy people. The second problem with this false teaching is that it was divisive in spirit. Verse 4. If anyone does not teach the, the teaching that accords with godliness, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions. And constant friction among peoples. There is a difference between contending for the faith and being possessed with an unhealthy craving for controversy. And Paul talks about these people having an unhealthy craving for controversy. There are indeed times where we need to be controversial. And there are deed times where we need to contend to the, for the faith with some aggression, confidence, and passion. But let us never confuse the difference between contending for the faith and having an unhealthy craving for controversy. These people were proud, they were puffed up, Paul says. They were ignorant, they understood nothing. And they had that divisive spirit, craving for controversy. And that did not promote holiness. It produced division in the church. The third problem with these people is that they were repurposing ministry as a means of gain. Verse 5. It produces constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. We don't understand fully the context of this, but it seems that rhetoric was a great form of entertainment in first century Greco-Roman culture. And if someone was an excellent speaker and rhetorician, it seems like they were sought after and hailed as wise. And that seems to be perhaps what's going on here. These men with different ideas and words and, and mystical concepts are speaking philosophy. Speaking very wisely about deep and dark things. And they're good speakers. And they have a passion to them. And they're persuasive But underlying that rhetoric is a hunger for social status and financial gain. And so these people seem to be promoting piety, or seem to be promoting prosperity rather than piety. Perhaps not only were they seeking gain, but maybe they were teaching other people that godliness is a means of gain. And have we not seen this in the church? And I know I've been beating up on the prosperity gospel lately in the pulpit, but it deserves to be beaten up. Because godliness is not a means of gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And it does no good for the church to tell people that if you follow God, you will be materially more well off. That is the exact opposite of Christ's call to discipleship to abandon father and mother and house and children. Perhaps it will be great cost. And it is a great cost for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted overseas and us who are well off in America and filthy rich to be sold this kind of teaching by people who have never, never known poverty or difficulty in their life. I think is a blight on the church and it will receive condemnation. So they are teaching that godliness is a means of gain. But, Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. There is another great book, even better than the first book I mentioned to you. Um, And this one I agree with pretty much everything that's said. Um, the, the book is called a Rare, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan. And Burroughs defines contentment as the inward, quiet, gracious, frame of spirit freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every circumstance. What a great Goal to strive for in life. Let me read that again. Contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. So, contentment is satisfied, it is thankful, and it is aware of God's presence and provision in one's life. We sing a song. Praise um, of the Lord And one of the lines is Hast thou not seen How thy desires have been granted And what he ordaineth Amen The Shane and Shane version says Hast thou not, Have you not seen how everything needful has been granted And what he ordaineth Which is true because that's what this, The original hymn writer meant Everything needful has been granted in what he has ordained. And that's what he's promised. So, there are three threats to your contentment that I see today. And my contentment today. And really briefly, the first threat that I see to contentment is what you are attentive to. So this is an inward threat that arises from the flesh. What are you attentive to in life? Because contentment... Well, what's a threat to contentment? is looking at what you don't have and being frustrated about it. But contentment is the exact opposite. It's looking at what you do have and cultivating a spirit of thanksgiving and gratitude for those things. So discontentment... It looks at what I don't have out there. I don't have all of this. And I'm mad about it. I'm upset about it. And bitterness is festering my heart because that's what I don't have. But contentment looks at what has been given and is thankful and develops gratitude intentionally and acknowledges the Lord's good hand in providing those things. So the first threat of contentment could, t- could be what you're attending to. The second threat of contentment today, or to contentment today, is marketing. And I think we all know this by now. Not just commercials, but social media is shaped, the marketing all over the Internet is shaped to make people unhappy with their situation in life. And therefore offer you a product which, if you do get, will satisfy you and satiate you. So that's another threat to contentment. It's seeing what's out there in the world. And it's buying in to the fact that if I get this, whatever it might be, or if I become this, that will, that will satisfy me. The third threat to, content, to contentment is comparison. We talked about this in Bible study, actually, on Wednesday. We talked about contentment, and someone made the point. I think it was Ray Skirma. Um, I think it contentment, to view someone else's life as the ideal, and they're the ones there, and almost to set them up as an idol. That's also a threat to contentment. So it's your posture of heart, What are you focusing on? What's been provided for you and to you or what you don't have? It's marketing. Beware not to buy in to the idea that if you attain this thing, then you will be happy and content. And it's also comparison. Make sure we don't set anyone else's life up or situation up as an idol in our heart. Develop and cultivate a spirit of thankfulness for what God has given you. How do you pursue contentment then? Verse 7. Paul gives us how, the clues and how we pursue contentment. He says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of this world. So Paul is talking about an eternal perspective. That's the first way you can cultivate contentment is to maintain an eternal perspective on your possessions. Material things are fleeting, and Jesus said that moth and rust will destroy them. So lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. I have always, it has always been like a proverb to me, how the Egyptian pharaohs were buried with their gods. (laughs) I think that is... Exactly right. Their god's died with them. And if we set up material things or worldly goals as our as the ultimate in our life, we are setting ourselves, we are attaching our life to things that perish and wear out. So, Contentment, first of all, comes by us maintaining an eternal perspective on our possessions. Secondly, Paul says in verse 8, If we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. Not if we have the thing that's out there, but if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. In his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Burrow says that contentment is attained not by addition, but by subtraction. In other words, contentment is attained not actually by achieving the things that our hearts desire at the moment, but it's by no longer needing the things that you now desire. So contentment is attained not by addition, not by adding to yourself everything your eyes see, but by subtraction. <laughs> not getting what you want, but training the heart to want less, in other words. This is really the discipline of simplicity. Not just simplicity as a, a frame of the soul, but also practical simplicity in life is very helpful for this. What I mean by simplicity is not constantly amassing to ourselves, things and toys and trinkets and more clothes and products and um, more media and more and even more books and depth is much more valuable than breadth in the Christian life. But dis- simplicity: seek to live a simple life and to have less things. Then amass to yourself everything that you could possibly have. So I want to encourage you to throw stuff out. Throw out clothes. Throw out old things that you don't, that you really don't need. Throw stuff out and cultivate more simplicity in your life. Because you're if you're constantly surrounded by product, it does something to your heart. It gives you a cluttered heart. So, The discipline of simplicity, if you want your heart to want less, have less. And Paul gives a third point. That contentment is attained by keeping your heart. The psalmist says, keep your heart from out of it flow the issues of life. And Paul says in verse 9... But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. A desire, if unchecked, will lead a man astray or a woman astray and they will seek after those things to their ruin I heard a story about a man who came from the Middle East to America in the Middle East he was Christian and he was actually beaten for his faith because he would not reject the name of Christ when he came to America he became a successful businessman and walked away from the faith the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And as Paul says, by this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So, those would be three ways, I believe, that we can cultivate contentment. Number one, by maintaining an eternal perspective on our possessions. Number two, by subtraction, not addition. And number three, by keeping the heart if you notice your heart attaching itself to things that perish, ask, the God for, ask God for his mercy, his grace, and seek to train your heart to want less by, get rid, by getting rid of more. I think that will cultivate contentment in our life. So this is just the, the tip of the iceberg with contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment is an excellent book by Jeremiah Burroughs. There's also another good book on contentment by Andy Davis. I'm not exactly what it's called, but Andy Davis, a pastor in North Carolina, has written an excellent book on contentment as well. I think this is such a key to an American life because we are constantly told more is better rushing is the good thing and content godliness and contentment tells you to slow down develop an awareness and cherishing of god's good gifts in our life and not to look out there at what we don't have but to look here at what we do have and therein is great strength and power